2: This is Brian Reisman. Welcome to the 25th episode of Side Jams, a proud member of the Pantheon Podcast Network. Guitarist Brad Gillis has sold millions of albums and toured the world many times with Night Ranger, the hard rocking quintet who you know from such hits as Don't Tell Me You Love Me, Sister Christian, and the Golden Globe nominated Secret of My Success. The group is still active four decades later, and their most recent album, Don't Let Up, shows just as much fire as their early recordings. During the downtime of the pandemic, Brad has finished up work on his third solo album. It's his first in 20 years, and he remains active composing music for the likes of CBS Sports, ESPN, and various video game, TV, and film clients. He even placed a flamenco track on The Price is Right. It's a lucrative gig that he's had for two decades now, and you can delve into that more at his site, musicalmansion.com. Now, when he's not composing, touring, or just jamming with friends, Brad loves to collect vintage guitars. After all these years, he's got it down to a science. For this episode of Side Jams, we talked about how he first got the collecting bug, how he procures items for sale, his process in determining their condition and their worth, and tips for new collectors. We also chatted a bit about riding his Harley along with other physical activities he loves. Brad spoke to me via Skype from his home in Lafayette,
1: California. It was our first time connecting, and we had a blast. So this podcast, you know, is all about people's hobbies and their passions. It's interesting is that your passion actually it does extend into music with collecting vintage guitars. But I was thinking too, I mean, I'm a comic book collector, I'm a movie collector, like sometimes when you collect things, it's not always just for exactly what it is. I imagine when you look at certain guitars, you're not just thinking about how it sounds, right? You're like, hey, I've got, this is a cool <laughs> well, looking guitar.
0: Uh, yeah, not only that, that too, but, uh, you know, my advantage has always been Brian, you know, uh, being on the road and, uh, you know, always having like a day off or during the day before we do sound checks, people bop around that city and right. and hit up music stores and uh, and pawn shops and fun stuff like that. And I even get to the point where I go on uh, Craigslist and I see if there's anything cool in town. If they if I see something cool, I invite somebody to the show. Next thing you know, uh, by the end of the show, I'm giving them cash and getting a new guitar to send home. So, <laughs> you know, basically, uh, uh, I do a lot of TV music, so I'm trying to get all those different sounds for whatever they're looking for. You know, you need all these different type of guitars. And I, I'm collecting old, uh, you know, old Marshalls, stuff like that. But I really got into the old uh, Fender Blackface amps from the 60s. And, yeah. you know, I got a 59 basement, which is like the Holy Grail of Fender amps. And, man, I just started going crazy in this stuff. And the great thing about my profession is that they're write-offs. I can write this stuff off. So, uh, <laughs> you know, at the end of the year, but yeah. I, I started doing my taxes, my tax, tax guy's going, all right, how much did you spend on guitars this year? I go, oh shoot! He goes, ah, oh, you, you you better you know get up to this amount. You know we need the write-off, so I get to go buy another guitar or two. So that's always kind of fun.
1: That's hilarious. When did this obsession with collecting guitars start? And then you know when did it get out of control?
0: Well, <laughs> I wish it would have started back in the '80s because when we were touring back then, all these guitars that are worth buku bucks right now were actually uh, yeah. in the realm of real money of what what they're worth, right? And uh, we were out with Cheap Trick. Rick Nielsen invited us over for dinner one night, took us downstairs to his guitar collection, and I saw all these old strats and colored 60s strats and the Holy Grails of those 59 Les Paul standards and all these great guitars. And I went, wow, this is great. I should have got the bug then, but I didn't. I was blown away by what he had, but you know, I didn't put my money into it. But about 20 years ago, around 2000, a friend I'd met online that had a, he had a guitar on uh, that he, put, he had in the paper 20 years ago. There okay. was no Craigslist then. And I thought, wow, this would be a great guitar to have. And I called the guy up, and he lived up uh, pretty close on uh, the San Francisco Bay Area. He was down in San Jose. He goes, oh, Brad Gillis, oh, Night Ranger. Oh, man, I, I know. He goes, come on out to my house, man. I'll show you all my collection. I thought, okay. So I went over there on a Saturday and hung out with the guy, greatest guy in the world. We got to be best friends. Cool. Still are. He had this major collection. He goes, you know, I'm recording a record. And I, and I said, uh, you know, my buddy has a studio in Hayward, which is about in between him and me, about like a half hour from me, half hour from him, yeah. him coming up from San Jose. And I said, you know, hang out, work with my buddy, Jim Hawthorne. He's great. So he hooked up with Jim and did his record there. And he says, man, I want, you, I want to have you come down and play some guest solos. I said, OK. And He goes, what if I give you a couple of vintage guitars? And I'm like, OK. <laughs> so, give you I, a couple of vintage guitars? Oh, I played all over his record. He gave me a 56 Les Paul Jr. Mintz Condition Wow, and a a 1952 ES-175. Unbelievable guitars. And that's what got the bug going. All of a sudden, I started, you know, getting the fever. So, uh, you know, he'd help me find things and I'd find things and we'd go on the road and I'd find more things. And so now I'm up to about 120 guitars and 40 amps, but I can only play one at a time. (laughs)
1: <laughs> you don't try to you don't, you don't try to fuse anything like rick nielsen just like you know six year guitars together into one big frankenstein
0: oh yeah no i we tour i got a picture of me holding that Hamer guitar with the five necks on it and he's holding my red strat and he's got shaving cream on it's like right after sound check and he's shaving and I, wow and he you know said dude i want to take a picture of your guitar he goes well give me yours so i got this great shot this thing is like 50 pounds i can't see how he played it but great classic guitar <laughs> made by Hamer. And uh, we were endorsed by Hammer for a while, and they made me a nice old double neck. But I, I never wanted a guitar with five necks. It's just too much overkill. Plus it's already been done.
1: Well, you know, being a collector myself, like, you have to have a fairly large storage area in your home to take care of all this stuff. So what do you do?
0: Well, I actually had a room dedicated to guitars. I took them all out of their cases. Of course, you got to realize I got about fifteen on the road, um, yeah. and we have an A rig in Nashville and a B rig down in uh, Phoenix, Arizona, that holds all the guitars we play live and backups and acoustics and stuff like that. So right. the rest of them at home, I ended up taking them all out of cases and put my cases up in the rafters in my house right. and set them up and got all these different, you know, the stands that hold five, six guitars. You know, uh, I ended up getting a bunch of little stands. I had them all set up and. This closet in this room, and all over this room, and you know it was great because my studio's here too when I record, and I just pop in that back room and grab the guitar of my choice and set up an amplifier, and I'm getting the sound I need for whatever project I'm doing at the time. So you know, there's been a lot of fires around here, Brian. Yeah. Uh, right now, especially, uh, it's the, I got them from the north, south, and east of me, but luckily they're they're not too close to me. But about a year ago, uh-huh. I was just when the other fires were happening, I just flew in from San Francisco flew into San Francisco Airport after doing a show on a Saturday night. So Sunday morning I'm flying in and and I'm driving home. They said, I live in a town called Lafayette, California. Right. And they said in the radio, we have a fire in Lafayette. No, Lafayette's a little bedroom town. It's a really nice, beautiful town. And I tell you, when I heard this fire was close to my house, I was forty minutes away from home. Wow. And you know your heart's pounding, you're thinking the worst. All my guitars are at home. Long story short, I was able to get home. The wind was blowing 40 miles an hour. I could see the fire over the hill. I could see the helicopter going by, dropping the water and everything. Freaking out if it came over the hill, I'd be screwed. So I started throwing wow. out all my guitars in my, in my rover, and and I called my buddy, who's a uh, commander at the California Highway Patrol. Okay. Uh, and I said, uh, I said, Christopher, I'm driving over. Christopher, there's a fire in my town. I go, can you call Cal Fire and find out exactly what's going on? So he made that call, called me back. says, yeah, Brad, it's right over the hill from you. And he goes, he goes, uh, get home soon. And, you know, he goes, don't do anything stupid. Don't get killed. You know, don't get burned up. So anyway, yeah. I finally got home thinking they would drive me away from my house. So I was lucky, able to get up to my road and I started loading, loading all these guitars up and I'm loading these guitars up and this car pulls up and I go, all these fires going on. Who is this? And it was my commander, Commander Christopher came to help me out.
3: Oh, so wow.
0: he came and filled his car up. We loaded everything up. The wind's blowing. You know, you can see the fire overhead. He's hung out with me till they finally got a handle on the fire. Luckily, it only burned two and a half acres. It burnt down a uh, burnt down a uh, the Lafayette Tennis Club and a couple houses. But that next day on Monday, I went. This is too close to home, man. So I went right over the freeway to this brand new cement storage place mm. and rented a storage. And, and drug all my guitars down there and put them in there. I only keep a couple at home now. Yeah, man, scariness.
1: And well, I see a whole band set up behind you. So is this also rehearsal space for the band, or is it rehearsal space for you?
0: You know, we've we've had the guys here before jamming. We're thinking about getting them out, but the situation's too uh, too delegate right now to get anybody over for anything going on in three four days at a time. So yeah. we're holding off of that. But I do music for TV and sports and ESPN and all that stuff. So I got all the equipment here to be able to get whatever sound I want. But I have what I, what I call <laughs> big time karaoke over here. Okay. No so I get my musician. This is before all the COVID, uh, last couple of years. I get, and I got a full PA system here. I got a drum set, I got all these amps. Congas. Yeah, I got congas. I get my buddies over here, and we'd slam whatever songs we want to, and we'd jam along to them. That's why I call it big time karaoke, because everybody's, you know, singing out of a PA system. I got the music blasting, yeah. playing drums, I'm playing guitar. Sometimes I'm playing bass when I got a guitar player here. It was just a lot of fun, man. And I'm I'm kinda in the woods here, so I can make a lot of noise. But uh that's my setup here. And basically my whole brains and recording computer and everything's upstairs in my house and it feeds down to downstairs here. So when I do music for like ESP interbox sports or whatever, I'm I'm into at that, whoever hires me for what. Uh, I have a drummer that sits on this kit behind me, yeah. uh, the talkback system, and I'm upstairs talking back to him, and I'm playing him the track with the click track, and he's playing drums along to it, and I'm recording him, recording downstairs, feeding upstairs to get get, get what he's playing. So that that's what's great, Brian, is I'm able to, I'm able to work at home, man. I got a lot going on here, yeah, same here, uh, and I, I'm I'm one of the lucky ones. I'm able to work from home.
1: When you find a new guitar, how does a new guitar seduce you? How does how does it speak to you when you're when you've been collecting these things? What what draws you to something?
0: well i've been into this for a long time i mean i knew i was pretty deep into guitars you know when i started out back in the 80s and stuff you know using different guitars and amps to record records with and such even though i might use the same guitars live yeah uh i, I just got into it but uh, you know then i i got a bunch of good friends now that are seriously collect and these guys are purveyors of of 50s strats and and you know the the big money guitars. So yeah. I started seeking and trying to find these old fifty strats and uh just old vintage guitars that have their own sound, their different vibe. But you know I always like things that are all original, and I don't care if they're dirtied up because I clean them up. I make them polish them up real nice, and I you know I clean them up. You take them apart, make sure they're all original before I take them apart before I even buy them. You know I'm sitting there at the guy's house, really, and like, dude. I got to take this. I got to take this apart to make sure. Nobody routed it out for a humbucking, you know. How do they react to that? Well, I mean, if you want the sale, you know, I got to, you know, they know <laughs> what I'm doing. They know I'm a collector. So, so you know, I pull it apart real nice and document it and, and take pictures. And okay. once I know it's right, I bring it home. Then I really clean it up. And then I uh, put up new strings and set it up to height the strings and everything. Then I intonate it and plug it in. Boom. There you go. But uh, I started really getting into these, uh, these old strats, these 50s and 60s strats. I got about a dozen of them. I tell you, man, the sound of a '50s original Strat. There's no comparison. It just got this twang. I got this, you know, the feel and the the sound. Is, it, it, it cannot be replaced, you know. Yeah. So, you know, then I, I go, well, I don't have one of these. Oh, let me try to find one of these. and then I then I used to go on, I used to go do the eBay thing for a while. Yeah. And now it reverbs out. I kind of do the reverb thing, and I have a bunch of f- friends around the country and around the <laughs> Bay Area that look for me. They they go hey Brad this, the friend of mine is his father passed and he's got a fifty nine Strat are you interested I said oh yes I am oh they know how to get so, you so <laughs> uh, yeah they know how to they they know my collector and I'm good for my cash so that, that works out well and what's the most unusual looking guitar you've picked up well I have these uh, uh, the Gibson Moderns are called okay they're kind of yeah they're kind of shaped uh, kind of weirdly shaped kind of like a in between a flying V. And it gives an Hmm. explorer. If you know those guitars, it's weirdly shaped. No one really uses them live, but they came out years ago. And, and, and this is funny. And someone will say, yeah, I go, yeah, I'm looking for one of those into one of those moderns." And they go, you mean that Flintstone looking guitar? (laughs) And I go, no, that Jetsons looking guitar. (laughs) They kind of, they're, they're natural wood. They got a crazy shape to it. So I got a few of those. Those are kind of wild. Yeah. You know, there's uh there's different guitars that, you know, that they made back in the day that just have weird shapes and stuff. Uh, I never got into those cheaper guitars and Italian guitars and stuff like that. Yeah. Now, I, I go for the, I go for the big boys, the Fenders, Martins, Gibson's, and you know, anything else that's uh, kind of close to that kind of quality yeah. of guitar. But, uh, I started when I was eight years old. Um, uh, the Beatles came out, and then I wanted to be a guitar player, and and it came around my birthday, and my dad's like, "What do you want for your birthday?" He goes, I want an electric guitar and an amplifier. My dad's like a Navy guy, you know, got a Navy dad, you know, yeah, right, okay, oh yeah. Uh, my mother who played piano and sang, She goes, "My dad, you know Jesse, you know, look into it, you know my, you know maybe if he takes lessons, you know, if he's into it." You know, so my father said, "You know, all right, for your birthday, I'll buy you an electric guitar and amp." If you promise to take lessons, I said, oh, sure. Are you kidding me? I want to learn, right? Yeah. So he took me down and bought me a K Vanguard 2 electric guitar and a K amplifier. And I played that thing, took lessons and had a blast just playing that thing. And you take a This old man that was teaching me, of course, I'm probably older than him now. <laughs> um it was like I was learning like uh you know, Marietta Little Lamb and all these, you know, these old standards. I didn't want to learn that. I wanted to I wanted to rock. So my brother being seven years older than me had a friend his age and came over, was a guitar guitar player, said, Brad, you're doing pretty good in guitar. He goes, yeah. Start and listen to the radio, man. Listen to all these songs with the chords you know. You'll start to figure out what chords go to what song. You'll find out the one, the main chord, maybe usually when the chorus comes in. Yeah. And that's in the you O know, and there's you know, there's a one, four, five, which goes to the E and the A and the B, given these basics, which I kinda already knew. But he said, implement that, you know, your those thoughts, the radio. Just listen to the radio. Man, that's all I did was listen to the radio, man. And everything that came out, you know, a Gloria and I'm Henry VIII. I mean, all these crazy songs on AM radio back then. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I started picking them up, and I started getting it down. I said, screw taking lessons. You know, I'm doing better off. I just listen to the radio. I'm learning faster, right? So around 1969, 1970, I was 13, 12, 13. Mm-hmm. My brother had all the latest, greatest records, man. Led Zeppelin 1, Santana, all these great records. And he set up a little box. He was into electronics made this little preamplifier for me. Uh-huh. I plugged my guitar into it. He took an out of his of his uh, record player and went into that box and with another out that went to headphones. So he'd go out every night and I'd go into his room and I'd play all these great records and just listen to them. And 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 try to learn how to play. We're talking to your big brother in the holding company, Blue Cheer, you know, Santana or Braxis, you know, yeah. all these uh, the doors. And I was just playing and and I learned how to pick the stuff up. And it really improved my playing a lot by doing that, you know, and then I, then I thought, well, I, I got to start getting into lead guitar. That was another story.
1: Now, is there, is there ever been a guitar that you wanted that you couldn't have that you saw somewhere, like somebody outbid you or it was there one minute and then when you went back later on, it disappeared?
0: Well, a couple of people outbid me. The thing is, you know, uh, that's fine because I'll just look for another one. But, you know, the guitars I always wanted are the big boys, which are that uh, – gibson Les Paul standards from 1959 and 1960 those things are worth a quarter of a million dollars up Ooh. and i just can't get into that right now uh that kind of money yeah you know a couple of friends of mine have them but they bought them years ago and paid 70 80 grand for them you know but that's just too much for me but you know uh, i got no problem sinking a good 20 30 grand into a nice 50 strat because that's wow. the holy grail of fenders And you'll never lose money, you know.
1: So when you had all this stuff in your house, what did your friends and family think about all this?
0: Oh, everyone likes to come over. I have no neighbors, so I I don't really bug my neighbors. Uh, I'm lucky to have this spread out house where I'm at and uh, I can make noise. I make a noise every day because I'm doing this TV music and stuff. But uh, every, you know, like I said, we get over, we do these jams and and, and, and high-end karaoke and stuff like that. It's a blast, but uh, that's all I do. All I do is music and have a blast doing it. What advice would you give to somebody who's
1: you know starting to collect guitars like what have you learned over the years about the business transactions and what you're looking for and the kinds of people you deal with
0: make sure it's original first of all second of all, you know a lot of these guitars have been refinned refinished okay and if they're refinished in the 60s or 70s it's hard to tell if it's really original or not so there's ways to find out i won't get on all the details but okay. you know just make sure it's all original and, you know, look look in the book and look at eBay and, and Reverb and and see what they're going for and try to get a deal on this stuff. You know, a lot of guitars on, on eBay and Reverb, they set this high standard price on there. Like, oh, I saw the same guitar on eBay and it it's worth this. It's like, I'm sorry, you sell it on eBay, but it hasn't sold. <laughs> you know what I mean? <laughs> yeah, yeah. The
1: well, same thing with comic books, I know some people have something at like, you know, or even DVDs. Like I met some people like, oh, this DVD is worth 80 bucks. Then you see someone sold it for 20 but the person who sold it for yeah. eighty, it's still sitting there. Right. Maybe it's kind of a weird realm. I assume you buy everything in person. I can't imagine you've probably bought much online. Or have you? I don't know.
0: Uh no, the only reason I buy something online, if it's through a friend of mine that's in that town that's okay. a, that collects and and uh he's buying for me and he knows what's going on. Uh, I really haven't been uh you know, a couple things, you know, I buy something and and maybe a pickup wasn't original or the couple knobs weren't original, but I got so much crap here that I could just put the right pickup in it, or the right knobs, (laughs) or whatever. But, you know, here's some advice. If you're going to buy something, don't go on eBay on, you know, what's for sale. Go on whatever you're looking at, and look up sold items of that guitar you're looking for. Then you can see what it really sold for. Then you know what it's worth. So that's some good advice right there.
1: What's the strangest place you've ever found a guitar that you purchased?
0: Oh, gosh. The strangest. Oh, I don't know. Or unusual. Uh, Well, I had to actually get right home from gigging with Night Ranger to find out this guitar was for sale uh, about 100 miles from me, kind of up in the mountains. Huh. And it was wintertime. And I called him up and I said, I'm on my way. I started going up there and it was snowing and I got lost. And this guitar was in a private, commu- gated community. And I drove I couldn't get a hold of the people. My, no, I had no service on my cell phone. Okay, And luckily they knew i was coming and they were driving around trying to find me and they find me but that's not really a weird situation i don't know it was, a weird a, it was
1: unusual yeah i mean it's like it's like that
0: i found him and i and i got a beautiful and the thing was here's a great story about the guitar i bought my buddy calls me he says yeah this lady that lives a couple doors down her, her her husband just died about a year ago and he had has this old stratocaster a 57 stratocaster are you interested wow. i said of course you know and i said what's the story on it? and he goes well, he got it for his birthday. He was eighteen. Was his eighteenth birthday in nineteen fifty seven. Learned how to play, started a band, started playing clubs around that Sacramento, California area where I bought it from. Yes. Met his future wife. They started dating. They got married. Wow. And she they she gave him the old me or the band? Oh, so he quit the band and stuck that guitar under his bed, and it was there for forty or fifty years. And that's that guitar I bought. was not that crazy? Have you ever bought a guitar just for the way it looked?
1: Oh yeah. Go see what a great example of that. Well, something that really struck you, like I just got to have it. It was just awesome.
0: Well, you know, there's there's a like a Gibson ES. Uh, 335s, man. They just got this own look. They're great. They're, they're very popular guitars. I was down at uh, this guitar shop in Nashville, Groom's mm-hmm. Guitars, and I ended up buying one down there because I thought it was cool. ended up bringing it home and playing it and going, wow, what a great sound. Yeah. Uh, I started collecting all these this Fat Body Electric Gibson ES-175s, and they got a Brown Burst and the sunburst, and I ended up buying a few of those just because they just look great, and somebody was selling one, and they have their own sound, but they're just beautiful guitars, and these guitars that I buy, they're eight to ten condition. I don't buy anything that's beat up. Okay, definitely don't buy anything that's been refinished or look like it's been messed with. I got a you know great collection, all this stuff, and then I got you know a bunch of crazy little guitars. These little half scale guitars that look like a uh, Gibson Explorer mm-hmm. that I put a Floyd Rose on, and you tune it up to an A instead of an E, and it's got its own thing. But yeah, you know, I, I buy crazy things too, but uh, mainly. Mainly the big boys for collecting purposes and trying to get that sound.
1: I notice most of the amps behind you are Marshalls. It seems like.
0: Yeah, I got Marshalls. Actually, I got a Mesa Mesa Boogie. I got Boogies. I got high watts. I got my Fenders. I got a whole Gibson Les Paul amp. I got the first Gibson started putting out guitars in 1952. Yeah. And the first guitars they put out were uh, gold tops. Okay. Gibson gold tops. They look like a Les Paul, but they're gold tops. I got a few of them. And the latest one I got was January. And it's an absolutely mint 1952 Gold Top Les Paul, no serial number. This is before they put serial numbers on the guitars. How cool is that? Now, Then also I have another 52 that isn't as good shape, no serial number. Then I have a 53 where they started putting serial numbers on it. And I swear, those things have got to be worth some big money someday. Imagine the very first guitars that Les Paul himself put out that had no serial numbers, you know. I mean, that's crazy stuff.
1: Now oh, it makes me think too. Have you ever been in a deal and you walked away from it because you realized the person was shady and that something wasn't right?
0: Yeah, a couple of times. Or things that you know didn't look right, or it looked like a refin, a refin, a refin. And you know, a refin I mean they refinished the paint. That cuts the value in half or more. And there's little things you could tell when it's been re- a lot of it's the smell. A lot of it's that smell, man. You smell. If it doesn't smell like a grandma's furniture, then it ain't right. Really. <laughs>
1: See, I'm learning everything. I
0: I'm
1: a drummer, so I start playing guitar. Now I've got to start. I've got all these different things to go by. And I was just watching Wayne's World again because I was preparing for this Bill and Ted movie story after writing. I know, like you know, Wayne's ideal guitar I think is like an early '60s white Stratocaster that's sitting, yep. even though it looks completely brand in new a case
0: in that glass case. Yeah, yeah, yeah of course, that's a great movie. Is there a uh, is there a guitar
1: like that for you? Is there something that you oh,
0: you, you, you I already have. A, I, I got a couple of those already.
1: Is there a, a dream <laughs> guitar like something you that that is your holy grail?
3: Oh, well, I,
0: my holy grails are, you know, this 52 mint gold top I just told you about. I have a 1968 Fender Telecaster Pink Paisley. They old Hippie Days, 68 and 69. They did, they did the Telecasters, and they put this film on it. Yeah. And this film was either like Pink Paisley or Blue Floral film. And then they put the clear coat over that. Well, I have both of those. And the Pink Paisley I have is absolutely mint. You know, then I have some absolutely gorgeous Martins, you know, D28 Brazilian Rosewood Martins from the early 60s. Wow. Beautiful. They sound absolutely fantastic. I got about 20 Martins in my collection. So those those nice. are kind of the holy grails. Uh, but I, God, I got so many and they all they all mean something to me because I found them in very cool, eclectic places. Mm-hmm. And I've set them up myself and dialed them in. And I played them on different songs with either Night Ranger or, or my solo stuff or TV music. So you know, they all have special meanings to where I've uh, implied them on whatever song I'm doing.
1: Well, that's the whole thing with collecting is you actually can get sentimental about certain things. Like I have a certain CD I got at a certain point in college, or like there's this part of my early twenties that this happened. And it's people who don't collect things in this same way, probably don't understand that there are these emotions that you can attach to things. As long as you have to let it go because your collection can get so huge, you know?
0: Right. Well, you know, my, my main guitar has always been my, uh, my 62 Fender Stratocaster, yep. the red one I play. Yeah. Uh, that's a weird story there is because when I was playing a band called Rubicon with Jack Blaze in the late 70s, we had one hit on the radio and we played that Cal Jam 2 back March 18th, 1978, the oh. biggest day of my rock of life. Yeah. 250,000 people at the Ontario Motor Speedway down in LA with Aerosmith and Ted Nugent, Hard, Dave Mason, Santana. And we were the only unknown band on there. You know, the, right after we got done with that, I was playing my Blacklist Ball at the time, which I still have. Uh, right after we got done with that, I was hanging out at home when a friend of my brothers came over. He goes, Oh man, dude, you played the Cal Jam too. How cool is that? I got this guitar. I sanded it down. This this is 1978. And he goes, It's a 1962 Stratocaster. All the box, sanded down. Everything, the body, the neck, everything. with the original pickups, everything else is there. Uh-huh. And he gives me, he hands me this box. He goes, Hey, you want this? I'm like, Yeah. Hey, thanks. I could, I could build it up and do my own thing to it. Right. And, and, you know, when you're that age, whatever, I was only 19, 20 years old. Yeah. You know, you're still, you're still fiddling with guitars and painting them and putting stickers on them and doing all this crazy stuff to them. So when he gave me the guitar, I thought, well, I'll start fixing it up. I had this Dawson 240 Z that was custom painted back then with this orange red Emron paint. And I had an extra gallon. I sold the car and had the extra paint. So I thought, you know what? I'm going gonna, I'm, I'm gonna to paint this guitar with this Emron paint. Huh. And my brother goes, hey man take it down to our buddy's shop that paints cars in Oakland. You know, He'll probably do it for free. And I called call the guy up and said, yeah, bring it down. In front of my brother. He did it for free. And he hung it on a coat hanger where they spray the cars. Yeah, yeah. tooth, and he sprayed it with, the, uh, with the, uh, the gray primer. Actually, car gray primer. Then sprayed the orange-red Emron paint on it and did a, did a clear coat on it. Guitar body done, the neck sanded down. I took it to this guy named Mister Kamamoto in Oakland, California. a Japanese guy that uh. that uh, redid the redid necks and fret jobs and everything. He painted it black for me. Got the original Fender sticker on it. Put that on it. Then we, I put a twenty-second fret on it. I don't know you those Fender guitars. They only have twenty-one frets. By missing that twenty-second fret, you could take the very top note and bend it up to a high E. I don't want to get too technical, but mm. I added that extra because everybody has them now. So now i got a red guitar, black neck, unusual already. 22nd fret. And then who comes out in 78? Van Halen. Yeah. <laughs> What's he playing? An original Floyd Rose. What's that? Those are the the big, huge, solid tremolo systems that you mount on your guitars. They have to be custom-mounted and routed to fit. Yeah, And then they, at the end of the nut that goes to the headstock where you, your tuners are, There's a, they call it Floyd Floyd Rose's nut that they have to dig into your neck to mount this clamp. And the whole idea of it all is once you tune it up, stretch the strings and you clamp it down, you go crazy on the tremolo and it doesn't go out of tune. So that was, and I love that idea because I was playing some old strats back then. I couldn't keep them in tune. And that's, uh, I thought, how can I get one of these? I found out Don Weir's Music City in San Francisco Someone said, hey, man, they got one. They only have one. So wow, I called him up. I got the deal. He goes, well, you know, we got the third one. Eddie got the first one. Neil Sean from Journey got the second one. And we have the third one. And I said, how much is it? And they said something stupid like six, dollars $700. It's a lot of money back then. I didn't have the money. But I have to have it. So I had a white Les Paul that I never played. I took it down there. Mm-hmm. And I said, I'll trade this for that Floyd Rose. And they're like, okay, sure. You know, they, they're, <laughs> they're better at the deal. But my friend thought I was, they, they couldn't believe I was trading this Les Paul for this new piece of metal, you know, Floyd Rose yeah. Tremolosis. Anyway, it defined my style, man. I got that thing. I started going crazy on it. When Eddie was doing the harmonic dive bombs, I started doing harmonics and bringing them up and shaking it. These bridges are floating, which means you could go up and down yeah. uh, to make your... Go, go up and down so when you do a tremolo on it it's going under and over the note instead of tremolos that are flat against the flat against the body you could only go down so that was on its own was a major, major revelation for me to start doing that stuff then i just started fiddling around with different ideas blank, banging my guitar one day i heard it go brr, what's that it was the tremolo bar shaking because it was floating it was shaking hmm. and it made it sound so i started implementing that into my style so if you listen to the very last note of my solo in the night ranger song don't tell me you love me right. you'll hear me go you'll hear me, you know, you'll hear me go
1: yeah, yeah.
0: <laughs> those are all things i came up with fiddling around with that floyd i got you know then i just started getting a little crazier on the floyd and come up with other ideas but it, it defined my style Brian.
1: Beyond guitar collecting, is there anything else that you do? Like, is there anything you do to relax? Something different that's outside of music?
0: Oh, yeah. I mean, I got a beautiful uh, fat boy Harley that I go over rides, and that really clears everything out. And, uh, oh, really? You know, yeah, yeah. I've been riding all my life. Started out with a Honda 90. My dad was a pilot. You know, he had uh, brought me over a Honda 90 from Japan. Then I got a Honda 100, and then I moved up to a Yamaha 250 TT Thumper, they called it. Then I ended up getting myself a Suzuki uh, 750. Oh, and that thing, the motor was too big for the bike. And I got a little too crazy on that. And I pulled the wheelie once and my hand fell off. And I, this is right after releasing night rangers first record. Oh, wow! And I crashed on it. Luckily I didn't hurt myself too bad, and I thought, you know what? I, I, I can't ride anymore. So I gave it up and I thought, you know, I'll get a Harley. So about 10 years ago, I got a hundred year anniversary. And then I traded and ended up getting this fat boy low. Uh, actually I bought it on the road, uh, Really? North Carolina, yeah. I was looking at some custom bike shop and went down there and we were touring with Rick Springfield and the Romantics. Oh, yeah. And I went to the bike shop and saw this bike I loved and, you know, he wanted a certain amount for it. And I said, uh, hey, is your wife like Rick Springfield? And he calls her up and she's all excited. I could hear her on the phone. Oh, my God. I'm going to get him backstage, right? So I got him backstage for the show. He got him, him and his wife. Meet Rick, and the next day I went back to his shop. I go, How much now for that bike? <laughs> and he cut me a great deal because <laughs> I took care of his <laughs> wife. <laughs> Got him backstage passes.
1: You're a smart man. So, like, some people surf that helps them clear their head. is being on the
0: road, like on the blacktop, that help clear your head? Yeah, you know, sitting in front of a bus on the road, that's always great, man. Talk to the bus driver and seeing that road in front of you. That's so funny you say surf because I used to wind surf here in the San Francisco Bay for many, many years, man. Really? And I had that I had that stuff down. No, I've always been pretty physical and always and I played Little League and but was into water sports a lot. Um, but windsurfing was great for me. But you know, I got a little older, kind of gave that up. I had jet skis for a while and stuff, but kind of tamed down. I work out on the road. I love to swim. Whenever on the road, I hit that hotel pool, I'm swimming once sometimes twice a day to blow it out before I do sound check and do that do that show that night. Nice. It just wakes me up and blows up any liqueurs that I drank the night before. Um, um, yeah. So you get a system on the road when you do it. I've done over 3000 shows live. So when you, after a while you kind of get it down, you know, and you kind of get your routine down, I should say. So when
1: you're riding a Harley, I mean, you, you're obviously aware of the risks. Like I have a friend who's close in age. So like, you know, his wife isn't thrilled. I think with him having a, a, a motorcycle.
0: Yeah. A Harley, it's a whole different ballgame, man. First of all, I don't go on the freeway. I refuse to go on the freeway. Okay. When I go with the rides with my friends, I kind of live in a woodsy area, got all these great back roads and the mountains and stuff. And we just tool around and usually three or four of us and we keep our distance and we're all, we're all pro riders, whatever, good riders. Almost. <laughs> I'm, not a, I'm a pro, but, uh, but we all get out there and just, you know, enjoy nice Sundays on the road, driving around and stuff, but I never ride in the rain. I got great gear. That, the leathers that are, you know, you use with the, they have the, they have the knee guards and the, of course the side guards and everything. Yeah. But uh, I just, you take it easy on a Harley, man. That's the whole thing, man. You know, it's not, racing, not, not like racing around on, a, on a, a Japanese bike, you know, it's because like, you want to, you get a bike like that, you want to race around.
1: <laughs> well, yeah, because I know some, some riders will like, will squeeze through cars in traffic, which drives me crazy, you know.
0: Oh, I, that drives me crazy. Oh, no, I will not do that. And I don't ride on the freeway. So that doesn't even apply to me. I see these guys, I go, you know, then also, you know, I mm. watch the news every morning. Motorcycle crash on 101, no, 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 motorcycle crash on the highway. It's like, okay, these guys are definitely going in between traffic and someone pulled over, didn't see them. I've almost hit two guys on bikes trying to go by me, but, you oh, know, wow. I'm cool. Is
1: there any sort of activity you're interested in doing or something you'd like some sort of the pursuit you're interested in that you'd like to do at some point later on?
0: Well, you know, I mean, you know, being on the road so much, you know, we do things on the road, try to keep us busy and nights off. If there's some type of cool thing going on in that town, we'll, we'll hit it up and, no, you know i like to jam with different bands that's one thing i love to do since i learned by ear and i knew all the i had a club bands when i was a kid yeah you know i love to go into a town with a night off before we usually get in the night before when we're heading back east and i'll go in and uh you know jam with a local band at, at a club that's always a, a fun thing to do because you never know what you're going to get a guitar they're going to give you to play but you just kind of get in there and, work it out but now i got everybody filming you it's like yeah okay maybe i should be playing this guitar through this amp you know it's like i'm really struggling trying to play here but uh you know it's all in fun it's all in fun i have a great i have a fun time jamming
1: quick question last question when i to motorcycle running if someone's interested in is interested in motorcycles but they don't know that much about it what what advice would you give them and, and how do you determine if it's really the right fit for you because it's not always the safest kind of riding. obviously it's different than being a car
0: yeah, man. I don't know. I don't know about telling anybody that's uh, that's uh, in their thirties or forties to start riding a motorcycle if they've never rode before. That's kind of a scary thought, you know. Usually, if the, all the friends I know that are riding rode yeah. when they were kids, like me, and grew up riding, and you know the ins and outs of bikes and how to ride and how to, yeah. you know, be be defensive, be a defensive driver, I should say. But anybody that's going to try to find a bike, you know, actually. Find a bike if you put both your feet down on each side. First of all, you know, don't buy a bike that's too tall for you if you're a short person. Find a bike that fits you. Don't buy a bike that's too heavy for you. It'll fall over on you. That's another one. And, uh, you know, go take bike lessons. You know, you the, there's you know, classes on weekends you could take to, I don't know about now, but, uh, yeah. but uh, you know, learn how to ride and, and be a defensive rider. But uh, it's such a blast to ride. It's just, it's, it's, I love it. You know, like I said, I don't ride on the freeway. I just have all these beautiful backwoods trails, not trails. It's, you know, I'm definitely on on on, on streets, oh, sure, roads, roads. Sure, yeah. You know, you don't take a Harley on, on dirt. But uh, you know, it's just you know, it's just one of my little things to clear my head. You know, and uh, but playing music clears my head. You know, I'm by myself doing it, and I do it at my own pace, and and no one's yanking my chain, and and there's nothing better than doing a job whether you don't know, have a boss looking over at you. Think my lucky stars be able to do that, Brian.
2: That wraps up this latest episode of Side Jams. Please join me for the next installment, which will feature Amaranth Singer, Elise Vid. The tunes used in this episode are from *Fox and the Law*, and I license them through Audiosocket. As always, thank you very much for listening.